Greetings, everyone. This is a Sound Health Option show with Richard Talk to Me Guy. And Sherry Edwards is still nail by nail, line of code by line of code, building the soundhealthportal.com. I know I say this every week, but I'm saying it again. I'm really happy that the Sound Health Portal is really coming together, and it's so robust. I watched a demo that she did the other day, and it's just amazing the amount of data that you can get from taking a vocal print, meaning a vocal recording, a wave file, a 45-second wave file, running it through the software, and just get scads of information on imbalances and things where you might have something going on, and you're like, oh, there's that, and if I take B12, maybe this will get the methylation cascade to fall into place. But it's really, I'm, I'm happy that it's available online now because it makes it much easier to use. And it also contains the nano voice, so if you just want to go in and see how you're doing in a general state, you can do use the nano voice actually from your cell phone if you want. I haven't gotten quite that out there but because I'm used to talking into a microphone. But really, the soundhealthportal.com is really coming along great. And again, this is the other thing I say every week, and it's true again this week, really true. Uh, Dr. Glenn Livingston and the Never Binge Again book. Uh, this is a show that you're going to want to tell, be able to tell your friends about and or re-listen to the material afterwards, I bet. And about 15 minutes after I click end of this show, you'll be able to go to Sound Health Portal, no, no, sorry, soundhealthoptions.com, click on the radio tab, and then click on the Sound Health radio tab. And the link there will be for all the show notes and the links to the doctor's websites and his own cast and uh, be able to listen to it there, and or you'll be able to go to iTunes or Google Podcasts. Uh, I'm quite fond of Google Podcasts because it works everywhere, and it's a real clean little app for free, uh, Stitcher or My Favorite Pocket Casts. And you can go to any of those and search for Sherry Edwards, and this show, up, this show will be there probably in about a half an hour to an hour. The aggregators, meaning those applications, tend to be a little slower, but they'll have it there. Um, and it's, I just know, I just know from reading the doctor's book and reviewing the material that really this is one of those things that we all know somebody or we are somebody that would like to know about not binging. And I think that's the, nope, those are the announcements. If you struggle with binge eating, emotional eating, stress eating, or if you repeatedly manage to lose weight only to gain it all back, you may be approaching things with the wrong mindset. Dr. Glenn Livingston is a veteran psychologist and was the longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm which has several, serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. You may have seen his or his company's previous work, theories, and research in major periodicals like the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Sun-Times, American Demographics, or any of the other major media outlets. You may have also heard him on ABC, WGN, or CBS Radio, or UPN TV. Disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and food-obsessed individuals, Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work with his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. Most important, however, was his own personal journey out of obesity and food prison to a normal, healthy weight and a much more lighthearted, lighthearted relationship with food. Dr. Livingston shares specific techniques for isolating and permanently disempowering your fat-thinking self. He reveals much of his own personal journey in the process. Dr. Livingston... Sorry... Dr. Livingston joins us to talk about his life-changing book, Never Binge Again. Welcome, Dr. Livingston. Well, hello there. It's really nice to be here, Richard. I've been looking forward to this. I know this is, uh, I, I've reviewed so much material that <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a subject that, in the world of weight loss, I, in my own life, I have been heavy, thick, fat, I've always been thick. But fat, not fat, worked out, not worked out. So I was interested in the material for myself, as well as we all know somebody who would like, a, you know, a, a clue, a hint, a powerful 
tool, which I think this is. But first, my question is, how did you, what's your journey from being a successful corporate consultant in the health industry? Was there a tipping point that led you to develop the protocol for Never Binge Again? Oh, well, um, I was a successful corporate consultant. I really feel like I was on the wrong side of things when I look back at what I was doing because I was, you know, working with big food and big pharma and they were engineering hyperpalatable, big food was engineering hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and salt and cytotoxins and packaging it all up in a way that was advertised to make you believe you can't live without it. And I, and I was helping them. So I feel kind of guilty about that in retrospect. But, um, but part of my personal journey had to do with a very serious difficulty with eating myself. And I could take you all the way back to my adolescence when, well, I, I guess I was always a weird kid with food, and I was fed strangely. My, my mom used to give me a big box of chocolate Pop-Tarts every morning, and that was my breakfast. And then my lunch was a big box of sugar pops, and then maybe I'd have some spaghetti and meatballs for dinner. So I was, not, I was never fat, but I really, really liked all of the industrial foods. I really liked them, sugar and starch in particular. And when I was 16 or 17, I figured out that if I worked out for two or three hours a day, I could eat as much as I want to. Really, 7,000 calories a day was no problem. Boxes of muffins, boxes of, boxes of chocolate bars, whole pizzas, whatever you could think of. If I worked out enough, I could eat it. It was no problem. I spent a lot of time working out. I spent a lot of time recovering from eating all the food. But I wasn't fat, and at 17 years old, <clears throat> that seems like a great way to live. But when I, got, when I got a little older, and I went to graduate school, and I had patience and responsibilities and studies, and I was commuting two hours each way, I just couldn't make the time to work out like that anymore. I just couldn't do it. And if I was, if I was lucky, I'd get an hour or two a week. I kept eating the way that I was because it had become a habit that really took hold of me. And as a consequence, I not only got fatter, but I, I, I got much less healthy. My triglycerides went through the roof. I had a reading somewhere around 1,100. I recall, I have a test that says 826, but got a reading somewhere around 1,100. And the doctors were telling me I was going to die in my 30s, if not before, if I kept up like this. And... At the same time, I was starting to feel the pain of not being fully present. Because when, when you're obsessing about food, you really can't totally be there because you're always thinking about when can you get the next pizza, when can, when can you get the next chocolate bar. And I'd be sitting and working with a suicidal patient or a couple right after an affair, and I'd be thinking about when, you know, when can I get the next pizza or the next chocolate bar. And that really bothered me. I never lost anybody, and... I saw over 200 couples, and I only had two divorces. But, um, but I was far from my best, and being the best psychologist I could be was really what was most important to me because I come from a family of 17 psychotherapists. And, um, you know, it's funny. When I, was, when I was a kid, everybody was looking forward to getting a car when they were 16, but my dad said I could go into therapy when I was 16, and that's <laughs> what I look forward to. So um, I, I had, a, I guess, some extraordinary resources for a person my age, given that I not only knew how to do these really big studies and could do one for myself, but I came from the family that I came from, and so I could go to the best psychologists and eating disorder specialists and psychiatrists, you know, really in the world, in or around New York City. And I did. And it was a soulful journey, and I learned an awful lot about myself. But I, um, I would get a little better and then a lot worse, a little better and a lot worse. And I went to Overeaters Anonymous for a bunch of years and felt like I was powerless over this thing and did everything they told me to, and I would get, get better and then I'd get a lot worse. And there were three things that happened that switched my paradigm and made me realize I had to do something radically different. Um, and if you think about the paradigm I was following, 
I was going under the assumption that the reason I must be overeating was because I had this hole in my heart. There was something missing, and if I could fill it, then I wouldn't have the desire to eat. There are three things that happen. One had to do with the corporate experiences I was having and digging a little deeper into what they were doing <clears throat> and the effect that it had on uh, the physiology of mammals. I'll talk about that in a second. The second was doing my own study to look at the relationship between the foods people craved and the um, troubles they had in their life. And the third was reading the work of Jack Trimpey, who wrote a book called Rational Recovery. And all these three things taken together, I'll just give you the, I'll give you the end before I tell you the journey. They led me to the conclusion that rather than trying to love myself thin or nurture my inner wounded child or heal my heart in order to stop overeating, that what would really work would be to capture and cage this rabid animal inside me and act like, act like an alpha wolf that was being challenged for leadership in the pack. And when an alpha wolf is challenged for leadership in the pack, it doesn't say, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug, right? It's not going to try to love the challenger more. It says, get back in line or I'll kill you. Like it totally takes charge. And I recognize that I could look at these urges as merely biological urges which were challenging for expression at the moment. You know, when you really, really, really have to pee, you still don't just go in the living room. Like, or you don't just go in the, at the table in the restaurant. You take control because you're the boss of your body and you say, I'm going to go in a particular way at a particular time in a particular place because of the kind of person that I want to be because I want to be a civil person in society. When you feel really, really, really attracted to a woman on the street, you don't just run up and kiss her. Like you, you have to sublimate that and either ignore it or, I mean, depending upon your commitments and relationships and philosophy of life, or you need to talk to her in a respectable way so that maybe you can kiss her later. And I thought, well, why is it any different with this urge to overeat? It's an authentic biological need. There's some type of authentic biological need that's being triggered. It might be being perverted by industry because I, you know, we didn't have chocolate bars and chips and pretzels and pizza on the savannah while we were evolving. But nevertheless, it's an authentic biological need in there. And if I don't pee at the table in the restaurant and I don't kiss attractive women in the street, then I certainly should be able to take control and decide when and how and where I express this particular biological urge. So, okay, let's, let's just talk about the three things that really convinced me that I had to switch paradigms like that. And then I'll tell you exactly how I did it. The first one was looking at the animal studies that show what happens when you short-circuit the pleasure center in mammals. There's a whole bunch of studies that started, there were a whole bunch of studies that started in the late 50s and early 60s, they're by psychologists Milner and Olds, if you want to look them up, that put electrodes into, they started with rats and they moved to higher animals, I think even humans, and they put electrodes in their pleasure centers in the brain. And they wired those electrodes to a lever that the animal could, could press at will whenever they wanted to. What happened was fairly astounding. The animals would ignore their survival needs to press that lever thousands of times per day, literally thousands of times per day. It's all they wanted to do. A starving rat would ignore its food to press the lever thousands of times a day. A nursing mother rat would ignore her pups and press the lever thousands of times per day. Their survival drives had been hijacked. The artificial stimulation of their pleasure center in an unnatural way, had hijacked the survival drive and got them to ignore what they really needed to do in order to pursue the artificial stimulation of pleasure. Now, I'm making a bit of a leap because I don't think that anybody has inserted electrodes into our brains while we're sleeping or anything like that. But if you look at the way the food industry and advertising industry are engineering these food-like substances, 
and you 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 know you walk out of McDonald's in just about any city, and you can see a Burger King across the street or some other fast food joint, right? I don't mean to pick on McDonald's in particular because they're all they're all doing this. And can we say that we are being given pleasure buttons, like in, in chemical format, where these are like chemical electrodes that are stimulating our pleasure centers? And you notice that most people who are struggling with their weight say they don't love fruit and vegetables that much. And everybody knows, I mean, every major scientific organization says eat more fruit and vegetables. Everybody knows if you want to be a thin person, you've got to get more fruit and vegetables in. <laughs> so, but, but people don't like them because, um, because if you're overstimulated by hyperpalatable food all the time, you know, this, this artificially concentrated source of pleasure, then your nervous system down-regulates and it doesn't respond as, um, as powerfully to the natural flavors in food that were, we were designed or evolved to respond to. So, and, and if you look at the, um, I'll give you a specific example. There's a major food bar manufacturer who shall remain nameless that told me that their most profitable insight that really put them on the map was when they took the vitamins out of the food bar because the vitamins were expensive and they were making the bar taste not so great. They took them out of the bar and they put the money into the packaging instead to make the packaging look shiny and vibrant and colorful. Yeah. Diversity of different colors. Scary, right? Yeah. And so what they were telling me was that they were faking us out. A, a diversity of colors in nature, a diversity of shiny colors in your food should signal a diversity of nutrients that are available. If you have a big salad with purple cabbage and, um, and green lettuce and yellow carrots and red tomatoes, you're getting a diversity of nutrition available to you. But they were faking this out. And I don't mean to pick on the food bar industry because it happens all over the place. And there are literally billions of dollars going into this, and people, people don't think that advertising really affects them or the packaging affects them because everybody thinks that they're a smart shopper. But you don't have the time to be a smart shopper. You don't have the time to pay the level of attention that you really have to pay to make those decisions correctly. You have to rely on your evolutionary shortcuts. And beyond that, advertising impacts you more when you think it doesn't impact you because your sales resistance is down. So I recognized there was a really powerful force aligned against us. Then I recognized that the target of all this was the reptilian brain. They're not, they're not targeting your thinking self. They're not targeting even your loving self. The, the, all of the thoughts that make us human, all, most of the attachments we have to other people and spirituality and creativity and art and music, it, it exists in the higher brain. So, you know, some of the emotions exist kind of just a little below that, but the, the real target of the uh, food industry and you know, anything that is creating an addiction it's, it's the brainstem. It's like the brainstem to the midbrain where love is an unknown. When the reptilian brain sees something in the environment, it thinks, do I eat it, do I mate with it, or do I kill it? Eat, mate, or kill. There's no love there. And so I was busy for almost 30 years trying to love myself thin and nurture my inner wounded child, thinking that that was the problem, when what was really going on was that my reptilian brain was being hijacked, the survival drive within was being hijacked by profiteers in industry. It, it's almost like every time I was looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container, there's some fat cat in a white suit with a mustache that was laughing all the way to the bank. Mm. And so that, that really convinced me that I have to be a lot more aggressive about this. It's not... It's not a soulful, passive, love yourself thin kind of thing. Um, the study I did showed some really interesting things, and, and the story probably is what really, really convinced me to turn it around. Um, it, it showed that people who struggled with chocolate, and I, I always started my chocolate, 
my, my binges with chocolate. That was my, that was my go-to thing. And it was always going to be, you know, just a half a bar. <laughs> and it never was. Well, they turn, people who struggle with chocolate tend to be lonely, brokenhearted, or depressed. And people who struggle with salty, crunchy things tend to be stressed at work. People who struggle with soft, chewy things like bread and bagels, muffins, they, they tend to be stressed at home. I thought this was really interesting. I got an awful lot of press for it way back when. And I figured that was going to be the solution because, you know, this is the last of my efforts to heal my heart. And I said, okay, so I'm lonely or brokenhearted. I'm not in a great marriage. I've got to do something about that. But before I talk to patients about it, um, and, and now I, I offer this as coaching and education rather than treatment, by the way. I'll explain to you why later, but um, just so you know. I, I, I talked to my mom, because she's also a therapist in my big family of 17 therapists, and I asked my mom, what was it in my upbringing that could have set up this pattern where I would feel lonely or brokenhearted or depressed and then go running to chocolate? And my mom got this horrible tone in her voice, and she said, honey, I'm so sorry. And I said, what is it, Mom? And she, I said, it's okay. Whatever it is, I forgive you. It's, you know, it's 40 years ago now or 30 years ago. It was 40 years ago, I guess, when we had the talk. And she said, honey, I'm so sorry, but when, when you were one year old in 1965, I was really a mess. Um, your, your grandfather, my dad, he just got out of prison. And I'd adored him my whole life, but he was guilty. And I couldn't believe it. And my whole identity was coming apart because I, I just loved him so much and I wanted to be like him and I couldn't believe he did these things. And to top it off, your, your dad, my husband, he was a captain in the Army and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And I was terrified because you know, we were trying to have another kid and I was thinking, Are, am I, I going to wind up as a you know, widow, single mother with two kids. And so when you would come running to me for love or food or affection, I didn't always have it to give with you. I just didn't have the wherewithal. As a matter of fact, I sat around staring at the wall a good part of the time. And as a consequence, in order to distract you, I kept a bottle of Bosco chocolate syrup in a refrigerator on the floor. And when you'd come running to me, I'd say, honey, go get your Bosco. And you'd go crawling over to the chocolate syrup. You'd take it out of the refrigerator. You'd open it up. You'd suck on the bottle, and you'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. And Richard, wow. if, right? I mean, it yeah. seems like a movie, right? It seems like a movie. Yeah. It's like, and if it were a movie, at this point, we would hug and cry and forgive each other, and I'd never have chocolate again, right? Or I'd never have trouble with it again. <laughs> yeah. That's not what happened. Yeah. As a matter of fact, my chocolate eating got worse. And the reason it got, I mean, we did have a hug and it was a really good conversation. And I learned a lot about my mom and I learned about myself and I forgave myself on many levels. And it was a good conversation to have. It was a soulful conversation to have. But my chocolate binging got worse because of this voice inside me that said something like, hey, Glenn, you know what? You're right. Our mama didn't love us enough. And until we can fill that great big chocolate-sized hole in your heart, we're just going to have to binge on chocolate. Yippee, let's go do it. And it was this voice of justification. And so coupled with the other two things that were going on, I realized, oh, my God, so I'm dealing with tremendous aggression, like an aggressive onslaught from the food industry and the advertising industry. The, my experience in Overeaters Anonymous taught me that everybody wants you to believe that you're powerless over this and you have irresistible impulses, and you can only do it one day at a time, and you better pray that God takes it away from you. Like to, and act like a helpless little child and get sponsors and those kind of things. And, and you can't quit even if you want to. So I said, I'm dealing with these overwhelming forces and, and this mythology in our culture, because that's not true, by the way. You're not, it's not an overwhelming force. And um, there's a lot of research and addiction that suggests that people actually can control themselves. And so I said, I'm, I'm just going to take control. Now, I was not planning to be a psychologist at work with eating disorders. 
I was a child and a family psychologist. I was doing a lot of things in business. I was just trying to get better myself. And I tell you that because I never thought I was going to say these things out loud. And I never thought I was going to have 600,000 people that were listening to them. Hmm. But the way, the way that I recovered was to decide I was going to draw very clear lines, clear and bright lines between healthy and unhealthy eating for myself. So, for example, I would say, I will never have chocolate during the week again, only on Saturdays and Sundays. Like Monday through Friday, I was going to be a chocolate teetotaler. And then I decided that the thing in my head that wanted the chocolate during the week, that was my inner pig. I wish I didn't call it a pig, by the way. I wish I had another name for it, like a food monster, but that's what mm-hmm. I called it because it was just me and my journal. So I called up my inner pig. I decided the chocolate was pig slop. When I heard something in my head like, oh, Glenn, you worked out hard enough. You can afford it. Half a bar won't hurt. I would say that's pig squeal. My pig is squealing for chocolate. I don't want chocolate. My pig does. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And that ridiculous insight, that it's just as crude and as primitive as that was, that would wake me up at the moment of impulse and give me a few seconds to think about who I wanted to be, why I made the rule in the first place, and make the right decision. I wish I could tell you I always made the right decision after that, but I didn't. It wasn't a miracle, but it did completely reverse my sense of powerlessness. I no longer felt confused like there was this mysterious problem inside me or there was some mysterious dark force that could take over my hands and my mouth and my legs and my arms and my, and my tongue and force me to you know, eat chocolate. I, I knew it was me making the decision. And ever so slowly, I realized that nobody was telling me what to eat. I could define my food rules in whatever way I wanted to. If I really wanted to have chocolate, I could define it that way. And so there was no reason for me to make the wrong decision. And as that dawned on me, I started making the right decision more often and more often and more often. And I lost a lot of weight. I don't know what my top weight was because I stopped weighing myself around 257. I'm guessing it was about 280. I don't think it was up to 300, but could have been. Um, I know that now I hover between 200 and 210 most of the time, and my triglycerides are normal, um, you know, around 100, 150 at the most. And um, you know, my eczema, my eczema and psoriasis went away, and I slowly started shifting my preferences for to more natural whole foods rather than industrial foods. Not that I gave them up entirely, but I shifted, and. Um, and I got better. So now I'm this crazy psychologist that goes around saying, well, I got this pig inside me, see, and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah. That's why I'm better. I, yeah. I, want to st- I want to step in for just a moment and add a slightly distant question, but I, but I think this is an interesting idea. Have, have we always, as animals, have we always binged, or was there really something that did happen in that technological I'll call it revolution. I'm not sure if it was a de-evolution uh, of the food industry that really discovered how to tickle our that magic vortex of sugar, salt, fat. And did my well, great grandparents? Did my great grandparents binge? I don't know if your great grandparents. I, I would think that they might have, or some people in that generation might have. Probably nowhere near as worse as badly as they do today. And if you look at the obesity rates, I think there's a confirmation of that. But there was, um, you know, if you think about human beings have been around for 2 million years, and it's only the last few hundred years that we have things like sugar and flour, right? Or I don't know how long flour has been around, maybe a couple of thousand at most. And the concentration of calories into a more condensed form, the elimination of the fiber and other nutrients that go along with the caloric content, that's relatively new in our society. And so I, I don't know if there, were any, if there were really any fat cavemen. I, I don't know. I think it would be pretty hard to binge on fruit and vegetables or, you know, the, the cash that they got because I don't, I don't think that they were as plentiful as 
they are today, and I don't think there was the refinement. So, like, if you if you really want to binge on bananas, you have to eat all the fiber. You, you right. can't just get the sugar. So it, it's a lot harder to binge on whole natural foods. So I, I think the answer is probably not. I think that the obesity rates speak for, for themselves that something really has been discovered and tickled, unfortunately, right. in our evolutionary makeup. Okay. And and now let's get – I know we're going to get back to the pig. I wish you could call it something else as well. As I was reading the book, I was thinking, really? Pigs? Pigs are kind of okay. They're kind of smart. But pigs, I understand the why. Um, talk about fat thinking. Uh, that was a really a phrase that jumped out at me uh, as I was reading the book. But the fat thinking, what is that? And why do we have it? Well, it's an artificial construct. And if you look at what I actually did when I took control, I, I use a rule as opposed to a guideline. That's really important. Please ask me why in a little bit. But I use a very, very clear, bright line. And by doing so, like if, if I use an even clearer line if I say I'll never eat chocolate again, just to illustrate, if I have a really clear line like that, then I can artificially separate my constructive versus my destructive thoughts about food. If I know that chocolate always leads me to binging and that it doesn't belong in my body, then any thought whatsoever that suggests I'm going to have even one bite of chocolate between now and the day that I die, that's my pig. That's, that's my inner pig. That's my fat-thinking self. Any thought that suggests that I won't have it or it supports me not to have it and eat healthy instead, and then, and I'm not saying that chocolate is unhealthy. Right? For me in particular, it is, but I'm not saying that you can't moderate it or regulate it or that some people just can't have as much as they want. But for me in particular, I made a decision that it didn't belong in my life, and therefore, any thought that supported me having it was my thought-thinking self. Any thought that, that suggested that I need not have it would be my thin-thinking self. And in making that separation... I'm then able to purge my mind of the doubt and insecurity which distracts me from the goal. See, people are frightened of the word never and again. They're very frightened of that. But I'm using it in a very particular way. And what you need to understand is that our reptilian brains are no more mature than a two-year-old when it comes to these food substances. And, and especially when you combine the... Um, the forces that are against you, the types of food substances that are being promoted to you, there really isn't the level of impulse control in the reptilian brain that you would need there to be. And so you need to present your food rule to them as if they were set in stone, even though you can evolve them later on. It's kind of like when my niece Sarah was two years old, I told her she could never, ever cross the street without holding my hands. Never, ever, 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 ever. The reason I told her that, even though I knew when she was seven or eight years old that my sister or, or I would teach her to look both ways and learn how to cross by herself, was that I didn't want her even distracted by the possibility. I didn't want any image of darting into the street running through her mind. I wanted all her attention focused on crossing the street safely, holding my hand, walking across the street safely. So was I lying to her? Yeah, was it constructive? Yeah. Was it an okay thing to do? Yeah. We, we can do that with our reptilian brands. We can keep a secret from ourselves in a way by, by telling ourselves that we will never do this again or never do that again, even though we know that with forethought and consideration, we could reevaluate the food plan and represent it to the pig as if it were set in stone again. So um, by... by creating these very bright lines that separated my fat thoughts from my thin thoughts, I not only started to identify more with my thin thinking self and less with my fat thinking <clears throat> self, but I could assign all the doubt and security to the, and insecurity to the pig. Like if, if I had a thought in my head like, well, gee, maybe you're going to change your mind or you know, you've, you've done it a thousand times before, why do you think you won't do it again? I would say, that's not me, that's my pig, that's my fat thinking self, and I don't listen to farm animals squealing. So that, that's, what, that's what the fat thinking self is. That's the benefit of doing it. You just get to concentrate all of your energy on accomplishing the goal. 
and develop more of a success identity despite the presence, the lurking, consistent presence of all of your memories of having made mistakes, all of the um, all of the food parties that you've had, everything that you would like to stop doing going forward. Mm-hmm. And now tell us about the difference between the rule versus a guideline. That seems like a fine oh, yeah. line, but I think it's powerful. Well, a guideline would be something like, I avoid chocolate 90% of the time, and I eat it 10% of the time. I indulge 10% of the time. And there's nothing wrong with that in theory. Like if you avoided it 90% of the time, when you had it 10% of the time, you had a little chocolate, then what's the big deal? Except when you're, every time, if you use, if you use a guideline like that, every time you're in front of a chocolate bar at Starbucks or you know, at the supermarket, you have to make another decision. Is this part of the 90% or part of the 10%? And decisions seem to wear down our willpower. There's a lot of research on it that suggests that there are only so many good decisions we can make over the course of the day. If we use a rule that says, I never eat chocolate Monday through Friday, then all of my chocolate decisions have been made Monday through Friday. I don't require willpower in order to get through the week. So that's why we want to use, we want to use clear rules as opposed to guidelines. Clear rules are more in line with our understanding of character also, and it seems like character trumps willpower. So we have a lot of unwritten rules that we live by without even knowing it. For example, if you, if you walk into a diner and there's a $10 bill on the table, the waitress didn't see your tip, she says, I'll be right back, I just gotta get a menu, and there's nobody up front, there are no windows, there's no video camera, nobody would see you take it, Virtually everybody I ask in that situation says there's no way they would take that $10 bill. And I'll say, why? And they'll say, well, she worked hard for her money and and I'm not a thief. And I'll say, so as a matter of character, you have an unwritten rule that says I never steal and I certainly never take money from other people who work hard. And they'll say yes. And I'll say, so you don't require any willpower in that situation. You just... It's not consistent with the kind of person you are to engage in that behavior, and so it's not a choice to be made. And they say yes. And I say, well, that's what you want to do with food. You want to assess all of the uh, danger zones, all of the you know, food triggers or eating behaviors that get you in trouble, and you want to figure out what kind of person you want to be in those situations so that you can go forward without making decision after decision and without having to deal with the temptation because it's just not the kind of person you are who would move beyond that line. Make sense? Yep, makes sense. Uh, We're going to take a short break for our sponsor, and then I have a follow-up question. Just one moment. Sure. Sure. Soundhealthportal.com The body's vocal indicators move with every frequency set that goes from your brain to any part of your body. We have a Dr. Russ Rudy who came to us on a scooter. He had multiple sclerosis. Frequencies of his nerves were dead from the waist down. I'm speaking as a physician and a patient. Uh, I went down the medical road first. I didn't get any answers that were acceptable to me. You know, when they hear something like, I'm going to listen to you speak, and I'm going to analyze, and I'm going to play tones for you and make you better, it just sounds so foreign to what we're expecting. And it took us from November of one year to May of the next, and it regrew the nerves from his waist down. So now we can believe it because it was science. I've seen it work in so many cases. I'm proof of it. I mean, nobody, nobody five or six years ago would expect me to be doing what I am today. Join us at soundhealthportal.com. So things that are out there that we don't have very good treatment for, why shouldn't they be allowed to try something different? My follow-up question or my question is, in your book you talk about we can't love ourselves thin. Why is that? I, I, I agree. I'm just like, why is that? Well, it's part of what I was talking about before, <laughs> that the, the part of the brain that's responsible for food addiction really doesn't know love. It's, it's the reptilian brain that knows eat, mate, or kill. And part of what happens is that the, 
uh, fight or flight emergency response is triggered when people are overeating beyond their own best judgment. It's almost like the brain perceives like people have gone through periods of scarcity with food or nutrition, calories and nutrition, and then all of a sudden it perceives that there are calories and nutrition available and therefore it better hoard as much as it could. So, um, so that's why you're, you're dealing with very primitive reactions and the brain seems to have evolved in three parts. There's the reptilian brain, the mammalian brain, and then the you know, near, neocortex or human brain. And the reptilian brain is eat, mate, or kill. The mammalian brain is, well, wait a minute, before we, before we um, eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact does that have on our tribe or our loved ones or our family? And then the neocortex or human brain incorporates both of those things and says, well, but before you make a decision about that, what about our long-term goals? What about the kind of person we want to be? What about, you know, our commitment to our spirituality or music or art or, um, you know, other, other long-term pursuits in, in society? So love, what we really think of as human love is, is a combination of the mammalian brain and, the, um, and our longer-term goals and definitions of ourselves. And the problem in the brain with addiction isn't really with those longer-term goals and, you know, what we think about love. The problem in the brain is that the um, most primitive part of the brain has been uh, diverted to something that's not really healthy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I laugh because now I'm going to ask this. Why is my pig out to get me? In a certain way, it seems like in 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 the book you you talk about the pig. We've talked about the pig quite a bit, and it feels like the pig is out to get me. Why is the pig out to get me? Am I am I characterizing that incorrectly? Um, your pig is out for itself, and it will. It's, mm. it's sociopathic, so it will sacrifice you, what you think of as you and your human goals, in a heartbeat. I remember a woman who told me that her daughter was in a car crash and was rushed to the hospital and was on the verge of death. And she heard this voice in her head that said, um, oh, nobody would blame us for binging now. And I said to her, well, do you see how sociopathic your pig is? Your, so, your, your pig would kill your daughter for one meal of pig slop. And she went, oh. So it's not out to get you. It's out for, it's out for pig slop. And it doesn't care who it hurts in the process, and you just happen to be the only one that can feed it. Mm-hmm. Does it make sense? <laughs> yes, totally makes sense. I, I like thinking of the pig as sociopathic. Yeah. <laughs> so that works perfectly for me. And what do I do about cravings? Is cravings a, a, a pig influence? Or what, well, what is course. a craving? Well, uh, in my system, I would define a craving as the desire to eat something that is, you know, for one taste, bite, or swallow, that is not within your carefully considered food plan. And what you want to do is commit to separating the language. So if I hear myself thinking, I'm, I'm afraid he might have chocolate, I really, really want chocolate, I would say, no, my pig wants chocolate, I don't. I'll never have chocolate again, even if my pig has other ideas. You're just constantly committing to that, um, to that the separation of ownership of those impulses, and the way that you're developing that identity, so that you have the opportunity. The, the other thing you want to do with cravings, though, is that the, the tricky thing with food is you have to eat, and there's always some authentic need that's being filled. So you you can't make your rules too restrictive. I tell everybody to you know, check their Whatever plan they come up with, they need to check it with a, you know, with a dietitian or against one of the online calculators because there are some rules you can't make. I, I couldn't make a rule that said I'll never pee again because I would be denying my body what it genuinely needed. I could never make a rule that said I'll, ne- I'll never breathe again. My body would force me to do otherwise. If you build your plan in too restrictive a way, and as a practical matter, I find that if you're losing more than a pound or two per week, then you're probably doing that eventually your brain 
wants to force you to be uh, wants to force you to be less discriminating. And um, could you remind me of the original question, Richard? I think I want to feel from it a little bit. Well, the, no, no, you're in the right path line. It has to do with why is my, you know, it's in that family of why is my pig out to get me or, how, you know, how do we deal? Really, I was moving into what about cravings? What do I do about the cravings? Right, right. And, and so you, you, just, you just want to separate it with language, but you also want to figure out what your authentic need is. So I once heard Jack Trimpey say he advises smokers when they're having a craving for a cigarette to go take three deep breaths of cool, fresh air and sigh it out. Because the craving is the biological error of the reptilian brain believing that smoke is oxygen and that it needs it to survive. Similarly, when I would have a craving for chocolate, I recognized that I was craving energy on some level. And I experimented with a whole bunch of different things that would be the equivalent of the cool, fresh breaths of air. And what I eventually came to was um, kale juice with bananas. I would make a kale banana smoothie. Sometimes I would have the whole leaves of the kale. Sometimes I would have the juice. And I, I didn't get high from that. See, I, I think a lot of these foods we're eating, we're not, we're not really eating them for comfort. Maybe that's part of it because... When you overload your digestive system, your nervous system doesn't have the same ability to conduct the emotions. But, but I think we're eating them to get high. These are concentrations of pleasure that don't exist in nature, just like a drug. And, and so when you find the authentic need, it's not going to make you high. There's nothing that's going to make you high like the chocolate bar did. But it does kill the craving. And so when you, when you find that craving killer... You want to reliably go to that, and you went, oh, yeah, okay, so it's not what, I, not what my pig remembers as a food party, but you know what, it's pretty good. And before you know it, your taste buds start to adjust, and the nervous system upregulates and starts to have a pleasure response to what it was supposed to have a pleasure response to, and the um, cravings go away. We, we don't crave things we know we can never have. Over time, it's like... It's like giving a prisoner a life sentence. Eventually, they don't want hope. You, know, you put someone in a cage, and they'll bang, bang their head, and they'll look for every possible way to escape, and they'll dig. And, but then when they realize that it's hopeless, it becomes a waste of energy, and it's actually demoralizing for them to keep craving, and so they, you know, they keep craving escape. And so they stop wanting hope, and they want to settle into where their life is right now. And that's, that's what happens with the pig. If you deprive it of hope for long enough, and you actively and aggressively fill your body's real needs, then the cravings die down and die down. I, I haven't had a craving, well, I haven't had chocolate. It's probably, gosh, is it four years? I don't know. I don't remember the exact time I stopped. But I remember, like, for the first week, it was awful. For the first week, I understood why people say, just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. And I, I wanted to climb up on top of a deer, deer of a of a clock tower with um, well, I wanted to scream. <laughs> and and then about a month later, I would still get cravings, but they weren't as strong and they seemed more manageable. About six months later, I said, "Where are the cravings? I just have them once in a great while." And a couple of years later. The chocolate bars look like a big bag of chemicals to me, and I wonder why I ever crave them. So there's hope. You won't be tortured forever. The first 100 hours or so are the worst. Um, your, your blood chemistry, depending upon exactly what it is you've been abusing, but your blood chemistry will normalize to a great extent after that 100 hours, and it gets easier and easier and easier. So the... Um, the thing you have to tell yourself about cravings is you have to welcome them. If you're frightened of them, you're giving them more power than they deserve. So you need to welcome them. And you need to recognize that the only way to kill a craving is to have a craving. You can't really kill the craving in absentia. You, you need to have the craving, not give in to it, feed yourself something healthy instead. And that's how you train your brain to stop having cravings. And in here... The sort of not exactly the flip side, but 
something along those lines. There's the you talk about the importance of forgiving ourselves. Can you talk about that? Because that seemed like a very powerful thing to me as well. Well, if you touch a hot stove, you need to feel some pain for a moment. If you don't, you wouldn't have known that you touched the hot stove. We wouldn't know where it was. What you're not supposed to do is throw your whole hand down on the stove and say, forget it, I'm just a pathetic hot stove toucher. Um, I'm doomed. I'm just going to you know, have to burn the rest of my hand off. And that metaphor or analogy would illustrate what's wrong with attacking yourself in a perseverative way, in a recurrent, stuck-in-your-head kind of way after you make a mistake. It's okay to feel a little pain after you make a mistake. If you made a vow to yourself and you made a plan and you broke it, you want to feel a little bit of guilt or shame because otherwise, how would you know to pay attention? There are children who can't feel any pain in the world. There's a disorder where you can't feel any pain, and we can't keep those kids alive very long because they start to cut themselves open to see what it looks like inside, or they just, they just don't know where the sharp edges are, and they bleed. They bleed out sooner or later. This, the same thing with psychological guilt and pain. If you make a mistake and you don't feel any guilt or, or shame, then you'll just keep making more mistakes. But the perseveration and the guilt, it's, it's actually a way that the pig has of trying to get you to feel too weak to resist the neck binge. If it says, forget it, you should just be, give up and be a happy, fat person. You're pathetic. You're a loser. You've tried a thousand times and failed. Why don't you, you, know, why don't you just go to the bakery right now? It, it's, it's binge motivated. So the phrase that I have, the mantra that I have that really cuts through it all is commit with perfection and forgive yourself with dignity. It's not progress, not perfection when you're committing, but when you're analyzing a mistake, then you can say, well, okay, I'm emphasizing progress, not perfection. But commit with perfection, forgive yourself with dignity. I like it. You could think of, you could think of a, an Olympic archer aiming at the bullseye. First of all, before they let go of the arrow, they need to visualize that arrow and actually feel that arrow going into the bullseye. They need to almost be the arrow and be perfectly, perfectly committed to shooting that arrow into the bullseye. But if they miss, then they don't shoot all the rest of the arrows up into the air or into the audience. They figure out what went wrong. Did I not account for the wind resistance? Did I not pull the arrow back hard enough? Am I standing in the right way? And then they need to commit with perfection again. So commit with perfection, forgive yourself with dignity. It's hard to keep overeating if you refuse to keep yelling at yourself. No, I'm here. I was wandering around in that for a moment. That's really powerful. I'm going to write that one down. That's really good. Because okay. um, that seems like a self-winding prophecy. You're, you do something, and then you're mean to yourself, and so then you feel bad, and so then you revert back to a, a thing that makes you think you feel better. And so you're just a self-winding, you know, oh, it's ugh. Yeah. That's great. That's really great. Um, in the book, you talk about you you went through a, a hard divorce, and you didn't binge, which I found to be amazing. And how did you not binge going through a divorce? Well, you know, part of it had to do with a really hard time in life I went through a long time ago. In 2001, I made a major in business investment in a gigantic focus group facility on Long Island. And I hadn't done any research about where people really wanted to be. And um, you know, right after 9-11, the advertising industry didn't want to send people flying to New York for sure. And my spouse at the time didn't want to give it up. And so we hung in there for a couple of years, and we basically lost $2 million. And Losing $2 million is not like losing your keys. You, you have to have your keys in order to lose your keys. But we didn't have $2 million to start with. We just kept on borrowing. And mm. went very, very, very deep in debt. And I got fat. This is during my binging years. I got, you know, fat, sick, and broke, right? And in retrospect, I realized I could have just been broke. Because if, like, if you have six problems and then you 
you binge, you have seven problems. And by far, the physical problems that I created by not taking care of myself were much worse than what I actually went through in life. So I, I had that memory, and I knew that I was going to go through something really bad. And I said, I'm not going to be divorced, sick, and broke. I'm just going to be divorced. So that's part of it. Um, you know, I also, during that period of time, during the last three years, I got divorced. My mom died. Both my dogs died. Huh. And I moved across the country twice by myself. And I moved two other times before that during the divorce. So it's been an extraordinarily stressful time of my life. And at the same time, Never Binge Again became a bestseller. And that, that's a positive stress, but definitely a stress because my life had to change dramatically to accommodate that. So people tell me that their life is just too stressful and you know, binging is the only comfort food, but, but I, I guess understanding, really understanding that these foods were drugs and that I wasn't just comforting myself by going to them, but I was actually getting high by going to them. I didn't want to think of myself like a drug addict. And all, the, all that combined, I decided that, um, yeah, I was going to be divorced. It was going to be bad, and it was bad. But I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to ruin my body over it. And if I was going to have any chance of a good life, I was going to have to take care of myself. And thankfully, I had the Never Binge Again methodology to do it. So I, th- that's when I... When it was clear I was getting divorced was about when I started to write the book. It, it was a journal that I kept for eight years, Me Versus My Pig First. And then I was a minor part of a publishing company, and I gave the journal to the CEO when he wanted to have a book that we published to prove our merit. And he wound up losing 86 pounds reading, <laughs> reading it. So, I, so I, I put it into a book form, and we published it, and it really took off. So... Um, yeah, that's why I didn't binge when I got divorced. That's why I don't binge now if I go through a really bad time. It's not that I never make a mistake, but I forgive myself with dignity and I get up and I'm able to maintain my weight and my health. Wow, that was a lot to go through and to come out the other side. And it seemed, and and did it a certain way that did that, I don't know how else to say it, uh, did that teach the pig something? I mean, did that kind of keep the, you know, in your mind, I mean, you you lived your your protocol and you came out the other side probably physically healthier in spite of the amount of stress that you went through. And in that process, does that not, does that teach the pig something? Does, is the pig learnable or is the pig always out to get you? Um, taught me something. It taught me that I've got the ability to beat the pig no matter what, no matter what, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it made, it made the pig squeals substantially less appealing to me. That, that's what it did. That's yeah. what it did. I, 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 above all else, I no longer have the belief that the pig is stronger than me. Above all else. I don't believe that there's any squeal it could come up with which would throw me into some never world where I'm just going to fall down a rabbit hole and... Um, you know, have someone force feed me chocolate all day. It's just, it's just not going to happen. If, if I make a mistake, I know I can get back up right away. And um, I also learned a lot. I, since I wasn't binging, I put a lot of time into reading about nutrition, and I found some mentors that I wanted to work with more closely. And so I, I learned a lot more about feeding my body in the authentic way that it needs. And I don't teach that because I don't have a medical degree and I don't have a nutritional degree. And I find that when I work with people about their own overeating, I really need to respect their autonomy. And if, like if you tell people how they're supposed to eat, then the pig will say, well, screw that doctor. <laughs> you know, you know, and <laughs> I, I don't think his diet's any good. We're going to have to keep binging until we find someone else's. So there are enough really great doctors out there with good diets that I let people eat the way they want to. And... Um, even if I severely disagree with it, I still think it's better it's better for people to stop binging and have control over what they're eating than to you know be eating the way that I think is perfect. But I will say that the particular dietary philosophy I figured out it feeds my authentic needs so well 
that the desire for concentrated forms of um, you know, starch and sugar in particular are, are gone. Amazing. Wow, I feel like I need to lay down on the couch and talk about that. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm surprised that we're at the point where I'm going to ask you about where would you like people to get your book and tell us a bit about your online courses because I think that's really, you know, great. And you all, do you do personal consultations still? Do you still have time? I do. That? Okay. Well, yeah, I, I, in, in different formats. So well, the best thing to do, I'd like to give you all a copy of the book for free in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format, in like an electronic copy, in other words. And you can get that at neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button. Sign up for the reader bonuses. When you do that, I'm going to give you a couple of other things. I'm going to give you a whole set of recorded coaching sessions so that you can hear what it's like to go through this process. I know this is really weird. I know you're thinking, why the heck does Richard have this psychologist on who has a pig inside him? What's, what's going on here? <laughs> mm-hmm. I know it sounds harsh in theory, but it's actually a very compassionate, life-giving process. And it can take people from feeling um, confusion and despair and hopeless about food and their weight to feeling hope and enthusiasm and confidence in just one session. And I want you to hear that over and over. So that's all free. Then I also set up a set of food plan starter templates, regardless of your dietary philosophy. It doesn't matter if you're ketogenic or high carb or low carb or point counters or calorie counters, whatever, vegan, macrobiotic, whatever. There's a food plan, and I call them starter templates because I'm not going to take responsibility for what you're going to eat, but you can see how you know, a low-carb person, for example, could put together their, their plan. And there's a bunch of other stuff also, but it's all, it's all at neverbingeagain.com and clicking the red, big red button, and you'll see what to do. When you do that, um, you'll eventually be led to our coaching systems. And at the moment, we have two programs, and then they're just strictly private sessions if you want them. The, we have a group coaching program where I educate people in detail about all the sticking points people go through as they try to implement the book. Everything you need to recover is in the book. I don't mean to suggest that you need the coaching program. The coaching program gets you through it faster and in some ways more powerfully. Um, And a lot of people really want that personal customization because we're really good at identifying the particular squeals that get you to eat. And we're really good at helping people to construct their rules in a way that really works for them. But, um, by no means do you absolutely need it. They didn't hold back in the book. So um, so I just want you to have it from that perspective because I'm trying to help a million people a year to, to stop binging. But we have that program, and it's a combination of lectures and then group coaching. At the moment, I'm conducting the coaching. I do have three coaches that work for me. Uh, this month, I'm conducting the coaching myself. Mm. And um, then we have a program to train and license people to do it in their own practice or teach you how to do it even if you don't have a practice yet. And um, start at neverbingeagain.com, click the big red button, and you will be led to everything. If you need to contact me, you can reply to any email that you get after you sign up, and I will eventually see that after my customer service person does. Neverbingeagain.com, big red button. Great. Okay. I'll be clicking. I have to go now and click the big red button. Um, that was really great. I knew it was going to be a, a good conversation, an interesting uh, realm. And I think it's such an important subject for people to be able to not be subject to that sugar, salt, fat thing. Um, so I just think it's really good information. And the book is really an easy read. It's not a tome. It's a short, easy read. Uh, with a lot of good I wrote a conversation. like It was a journal originally. Yeah. And I like that. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much, John. That was really good. And once again, everybody, you can find the show in about 15 minutes after we end at soundhealthoptions.com. Click on the radio tab and then click on Sound Health Radio, and it'll take you back to the show page with the links that Glenn mentioned. And click on the red button. I might admit as a tab in the show notes after we stop. Uh, thank you again, and everybody have a great rest of the weekend. Bye-bye.
Bye, Rich.